Welcome to a Kessler Foundation Spinal Cord Injury Grand Rounds podcast featuring Dr. Andrew Elkwood from the Institute for Advanced Reconstruction at the Plastic Surgery Center, Shrewsbury, New Jersey. This is the second lecture in a two-part series on surgical interventions in people with spinal cord injury. This presentation was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation, on Monday, November 13, 2017, at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey. This lecture was hosted by the Northern New Jersey Spinal Cord Injury System, which is supported by a grant from the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Nidler Grant Number 90SI5026. Nidler is a center within the Administration for Community Living, Department of Health and Human Services. Let's listen in. I want to talk about three key concepts that you should know when treating nerve pain, peripheral nerve paralysis, and traumatic injury. What I really want, you know, particularly for the residents, is, uh, uh, and if you're residents in PM&R, is how are the surgeons thinking? What are the surgeons thinking about? How do we look at the same patient from a surgical perspective? What are we seeing what, vis-a-vis what, what are you guys seeing? Uh, and that's, that's really what I want everyone to take home. Unfortunately, our fields don't always interact so much. And I think that the surgeons really have a lot to offer in, in uh, treating some of these patients. Uh, and if you understand how we think, or don't think, then uh, that may make that interaction a little bit more fruitful for our patients, and ultimately that's what we want to do. So, uh, three key concepts. Peripheral nerve injuries can be very difficult to diagnose, as you may or may not know. Some of this may be very redundant for you guys, some of this may not be, but I leave in a lot of this just, just for sake of continuity. Time of treatment is of the essence. And don't believe everything you hear about nerve injuries. So if you walk away with three points, these are the three points. Peripheral nerve surgery. Obviously, uh, peripheral nervous system being everything from the spinal cord out. Uh, there are th three separate things that we really think about with peripheral nerve injury. Where's, where's, is there a pointer on here? Yes. Which am I? Oh, that's what I thought I hit. No? Oh, there we go. Okay. So obviously, Peripheral nerve surgery treating disorders of peripheral nerve. That's obvious. That's... But we use peripheral nerve surgery techniques for treating spinal cord injury, treating central injuries like stroke. And probably that may be what you find the most interesting in this talk is to see how surgeons think about these things, how we use the techniques that we use in one part of the body or for one disease state and we impart that into another part of the body or another disease state. That's what I find really interesting about the surgery that we do. And again, I, I wanna make that mental connection so that you guys understand how we think about these things. Uh, some of the things that we may treat, peripheral nerve disorders, compression neuropathies, things like facial paralysis, phantom limb pain, peripheral nerve trauma, but also spinal cord injuries, things like tetraplegic hand, uh, pressure sores, ventilator dependency, bladder dysfunction. There are peripheral nerve uh, treatments that you can use for spinal cord problems. Stroke. I just saw a patient today that came in from, where'd she come in? Mi no. Montana. 38-year-old woman that had a stroke, probably from dehydration after running a marathon. 
And now what can we do as far as getting function back for her? I mean, horrible, tragic story, otherwise really healthy. Now what do we do? And by the end of this talk, hopefully you'll, you'll see it kind of the way I see it. Uh, so there are three basic uh, uh, goals of peripheral nerve surgery. Obviously, return of function, decrease in disability score, but something that is often not well appreciated is decrease in pain. Most of these patients that I see that have a pan brachial plexopathy, I'll tell them, listen, if you never move again, but we get you off narcotics and we get you off the neuromodulators and you don't have pain, we will consider this surgery a victory. And if you were to ask most of these post-op patients what is the most important aspect of the surgery that you had, it's said getting out of pain, which is very counterintuitive, but I'm sure you guys see it you know, quite a bit. Again, three basic factors for any nerve repair, pain, return of sensibility, and motion. Uh, this may seem basic to you guys, but this works for me. I still, think, I still think in terms of this analogy when it comes to the musculoskeletal system is the electric garage door. I'm sure you all know how an electric garage door works, right? You have an outlet in the ceiling of your garage, then you have a wire that goes to the motor, motor spins, pulley, pulls on a chain, opens the door. To me, that is almost perfectly analogous to the musculoskeletal system. How is that? Well, let's say that everything from the outlet in, so the wiring in the ceiling, your, your electrical panel, all that is a central nervous system. The plug, the outlet in the ceiling of your garage, is the nerve root. Obviously, the wire is the nerve. The motor is the muscle. The um, chain is the tendon, and ultimately, the garage door is the joint. That's the thing you want to move. And we'll come back to this analogy again. This analogy works very well for me. I'm sitting there even in the OR, and I'm using this in the back of my head. So, central nervous system versus peripheral nervous system. Obviously, you guys know the difference exceptionally well. But one of the distinctions that's very, very important to us is avulsion versus rupture. What is an avulsion? An avulsion is when the nerve root is torn out of the spinal cord. That is a central nervous system problem. Central nervous system will not heal. You know that. Hopefully one day we'll have stem cell therapy, we'll have whatever. As you know, if a patient improves after a stroke or spinal cord injury, it's not really due to healing. It's due to decreasing edema, alternative pathways uh, being relearned and utilized, so on and so forth. But it's not primary healing of the tissues. Uh, a rupture is where the nerve root is torn just after its exit from uh, the spinal cord. That is a peripheral nervous system injury, those heal very, very well. How do we differentiate the two? Let's say in a patient that has a brachial plexopathy, we'll often get a CT myelogram to look for pseudo um, herniations. So central nervous system cannot be fixed, right? Unfortunately, we don't have that stem cell cure today. You maximize therapy, you do all of those things, you let the body, the edema go down, alternative pathways heal, you support alternative pathways, so on and so forth, but it can't be fixed. So what do we do? Do we do nothing at that point? No. If, let's say, the outlet in the electric garage door in your garage, the outlet is dead, the fuse box is down, you can't fix it. What do you do? Do you leave your Lexus in the garage and never drive it again? No. What would a smart person do? A smart person in some way would MacGyver it, right? If the outlet is not working, what would you do? You get an extension cord and you'd plug it into a different outlet, right? That's a neurotization. We do that all the time. 
and we'll talk about some, some examples. But what is a typical neurotization that we do? Let's say there are two nerves that go to the pec major, right? Medial and lateral pectoral nerves. And let's say your musculocutaneous nerve is not working. Well, what would you do? What would a smart person do? You take one of the pectoral nerves and you plug it into the musculocutaneous nerve. They're synergistic muscles, so your brain relearns very quickly with the aid of, of good therapy. Uh, contract your, your pec when you want to bend your elbow. It's one we use all the time. I'll show you some of the other examples. Another example we use all the time is spinal accessory nerve. Spinal accessory nerve is a cranial nerve, right? Or not quite a cranial nerve, pseudocranial nerve, whatever you want to call it. Nonetheless, doesn't run through the area of the brachial plexus, comes out through the skull. So it's almost always spared for brachial plexus injuries. So that means even the worst plexus patient can still shrug their shoulder. So we use part of that. After it arborizes, we'll take one of the branches and we'll plug it into whatever. Classically, you use suprascapular nerve to try and get arm abduction again. That is neurotization. Tendon transfer. Let's say we can't get the motor of the, uh, of the electric garage door working no matter what. Are you going to leave your new car in the garage and never drive it again? No. What's a smart person going to do? If you're smart and you're handy, you'll get a couple of pulleys, you get a couple of ropes, and you will attach two garage doors to the one. Or you'll take your spouse's garage door and run a couple of pulleys and make it open your door. That's a tendon transfer, right? Do that all the time. Typical tendon transfers. We have two tendons that extend the wrist, two tendons that flex the wrist. If they're available, you don't need them. Right? Why do we extend and flex the wrist? We extend the wrist for power grip. We flex the wrist for dexterity. But if you have someone that's, that's got a flail arm, they don't need power grip nor dexterity. So you're willing to sacrifice those things, and we use them all the time, let's say, for finger extension or finger flexion and so on and so forth. Sometimes we'll even fuse a wrist so that we have, the, we have the wrist flexors and extensors to use for other more important things. So tendon transfers, joint fusion. Ultimately, you can't get the electric garage door to work no matter what you do. What do you do? Again, do you leave your car in the garage? No, you don't. You jam the car, the door open. And that's a joint fusion. We do that all the time, right? Let's say you have a patient that you cannot get thumb abduction, you can't get opposition. What do you do? We'll fuse the thumb in a neutral position so at least they have pinch. That's a classic one. Or a wrist fusion, as we said before. Patient, you want to use those spare parts, you want to use those other tendons, fuse the wrist in a neutral position, and then you can use the wrist uh, tendons. So this is how we think about things. So peripheral nervous system can be fixed. How do we fix peripheral nerves? Well, one way is direct repair, we sew them. So if a patient just has a sharp injury, you do an epineural repair under the microscope, primary repair. You can nerve graft. So if, if the wire to your electric garage door is cut, you splice it together. If you're missing a segment or the wire is destroyed, you can't go to Home Depot to get a piece of wire for the body, you can't get a nerve, so what do you do? You take it from elsewhere. We'll take typically sural nerve, but there's, there's a dozen different nerves that you can use. And a patient that really has a bad paralysis will take their ulnar nerve. They're not going to be using it. I had a kid just last week, pan plexus injury, took both nerves from the leg, so on and so forth. He was late in the game. We took his ulnar nerve because we weren't re-innervating the ulnar nerve anyway. Um, neurotization we talked about, nerve grafting we talked about. Oh, I should say with uh, nerve grafting, we'll even do sometimes transplants. Uh, we did the first living related nerve transplant in the world where we take nerve, sural nerve typically from a family member uh, and 
give it to the patient. We immunosuppress the patient for about a year, year and a half. And the axons grow back through and the sheath is, is replaced by the body. You don't need immunosuppression after about a year, year and a half. And we'll talk about that a little bit. Some interesting stuff. Uh, tendon transfer we talked about. Free muscle flap, what is that? Well, as we'll talk about in a little bit, as you guys well know, motor end plates were, will irreparably um, deteriorate after about a year, year and a half of having no nerve input. After that, even if you bring nerve input back to the muscle, irretrievable. So what do we do? With the help of Dr. Schneider, our friendly microsurgeon, you can wave, Dr. Schneider. Uh, we'll take muscle from elsewhere. Typically, we use the uh, uh, gracilis muscle because very expendable, easy to harvest, so on and so forth. A lot of technical reasons why we like it. Under the microscope, we'll hook up the artery and vein, and we'll use it to replace, let's say, a bicep. We typically power that off of the intercostals. And lastly, joint fusion, we talked about that. Nerve injuries, you guys know this well. Two basic, this is below your level, but two basic types of injuries, neuropraxia versus neurotomesis. Neuropraxia is a bruised nerve, it's gonna get better on its own. Neuropractic injuries are not operated on. Neurotomesis, axotomesis, you want to, you want to uh, operate on. How do we know the difference? How do we tell? EMG can be helpful. But at about three months, if a neuropractic injury is not better, it's not getting better. And we'll talk about timing a little bit more. But for that reason, you want to operate on everything worse than a neuropractic injury. You want to not operate on neuropractic injuries. If they're not better by three months, they're not getting better. But a lot of these injuries are mixed, right? A nerve can have hundreds of thousands of fibers in it. Some of those fibers may be torn. Some of those fibers may not be. When you have a mixed injury, you know, that's when, that's when the diagnosis gets very difficult. And it's not only about movement, it's also about strength. If only half the fibers are coming back, that muscle will not be as strong as if all the fibers come back. So it starts becoming a very, very difficult decision as to who to operate on and when. It's not black and white, it's not binary. And it depends on the muscle. If, if you have 10 pounds of, of, of strength in your elbow, that's pretty good. You can feed yourself, brush your teeth, do, do what you need to do. You have 10 pounds worth of strength in your leg, all you can do is position your leg. You can't walk on it. So it really depends upon the anatomy and what the needs are. 80-year-old lady, one thing. 25-year-old laborer, another thing as to how much strength they need, so on and so forth. This you know. Uh, back to the wire analogy. Uh, a nerve is a lot like a wire in that the axon conducts electricity, but as we know, it does it chemically, right? Uh, and the nerve sheath, uh, I, always, I always like to uh, oversimplify, is like the installation. But if you remember, back to neurophysiology, whenever you transect an axon, everything distal will undergo Wallerian degeneration, right? The axon itself will dissolve. So when we do nerve surgery, if we're repairing a nerve, we're not repairing the nerve, we're just repairing the nerve sheath. If we take sural nerve from a leg and we graft it in, we know there's nothing in that sural nerve. It's just a sheath. It's just a pathway for the new nerve to grow through. Uh, how do we know where the end of that new healthy nerve is? Tenel sign, right? If a patient has a tenel sign, they probably need surgery. That means it's, it's probably not neuropractic. That most distal aspect of the healthy nerve is where you get a tenel sign. And when that nerve begins to grow again, when that axon begins to grow, remember it'll migrate at about 
a millimeter a day, right? Which is about an inch a month. Start doing the math. If the motor end plate needs motor innervation, needs nerve innervation within a year, year and a half or so, and if not, it will irretrievably atrophy, and your repair goes at a millimeter a day, if I need to get from the neck to the fingertips, it's not gonna make it if I, I wait a year. That's why timing is so important. It's gonna take a year from the time I repair. So if I wait a year to see if they get better, I've burned all the bridges. There's no way I'm getting intrinsic back. Now the more proximal you are, the closer you are to your repair, the more likely you are to get reinnervation. Now that's with motor. Sensory, there's no time limits at all. But interestingly, and we'll get back to it in a minute, or in a few minutes, there's also no time limits with stroke, and there's no time limits with spinal cord injury, because they're central, they're not peripheral. So you'll start seeing how we think a little bit. You'll start seeing when we operate on stroke patients or spinal cord patients and we want to re-innervate them, time doesn't matter. Okay, some repair techniques. When it comes to repairs, we're really operating on the uh, epineurium, and we don't sew the nerve fibers. In fact, we, we, we don't even do uh, fascicular repairs typically. We'll line up fascicles, but we try not to stitch them. The more suturing you do inside the nerve, the more scarring you get. Uh, many studies have shown what we really do is an epineural repair. The reason we do it under the microscope is because you want good apposition. You don't want this. This is a bad repair. It's not going to work. This is a good repair. If a nerve can, is cut and it cannot find its mate, it wants to heal. It doesn't know where to heal it heals in a neuroma. Neuroma, in Neanderthal surgeon parlance, is just a nerve ball from the nerve trying to find its mate to regrow, and it can't. How do we treat neuromas? We try and fix a nerve. The best way to fix a neuroma is to find the mate and let the nerve grow back through. And sometimes these are very small microscopic nerves. There are certain nerves that want to form more neuromas more than others. For some reason, the radial nerve just has this great propensity to form neuromas. I've seen neuromas from people that had an IV placed and just obviously got a little microscopic nerve, happened to be in the path of the IV. They get a neuroma. Best way to fix neuromas, best way to get rid of them, is to find a nerve for it to grow into. If you can't find its anatomic mate, then sometimes we'll just graft it into another nerve just so it has a place to go. If you can't find anything like that, we'll often, aside from things like RF ablation and uh, alcohol injection, you try those things first. Obviously, if they work, you save an operation. If they don't work, another thing that we'll do is we'll bury it in bone. And another thing that we'll sometimes do is bury it in muscle. For some odd reason, has been shown uh, that if you put even a sensory nerve into muscle, it will become more motor-like and will hopefully have less, less painful neuromas. Anyway, interposition grafts. What is an interposition graft? An interposition graft is where we take a piece of nerve if there is a uh, gap, and typically we take it from the sural and we sew an anastomosis proximal and distal. Uh, and splice in that wire. Which nerves do we use? Sural nerve is, is typical. I joke, I call it God's gift to microsurgeons. It's 
easy to harvest, it's subcutaneous, its only function is to give you sensibility to the outside of your foot, most people don't miss it. Uh, it's long, it's straight, it's about 30 centimeters, perfect graft. We use that all the time. When we do nerve transplants, we'll typically take serals from the donor. Other nerves you can use, antibrachiocutaneous nerve, cervical plexus branches, posterior interosseous nerve, some uh, nerve conduits, which are artificial nerves off the shelf, or uh, freeze-dried uh, cadaver nerve, but those aren't as good. We don't like them for motor. We like them only for sensory. And they're probably only good for about a four centimeter gap or so. Those aren't bad for digital nerve injuries in the middle of the night or whatever, but other than that. And nerve allograft. We've done 14 nerve transplants with immunosuppression. We have the nephrologist manage the immunosuppression for us. Too many big words for surgeons. <laughs> Too many abbreviations for molecules that we're not sure what they are. So we have uh, the nephrologist manage the, uh, the um, immunosuppression for us. Some of the donor nerves that we use, we can use greater, greater auricular, greater occipital, you know, off the, off the um, cervical plexus, or here's the sural. And the sural runs right up between the two heads of the gastroc, just like a, a stocking seam. Uh, now we harvest sural nerve uh, either with a scope or through uh, minimal incisions, just one or two of these small incisions, and this is what the sural nerve looks like. It is the same caliber and length pretty much in Linguini, maybe a little longer. We can get about 30, 35 centimeters out of a tall person. Uh, what do we do when you have a large caliber nerve and you, have, you want to graft just a small all you have is a sural. So what I always say, what do you do if you have a ZD and you only have a linguini as a graft? Well, you'll cable it up. So what we'll do is we'll take multiple lengths of the sural nerve and we'll glue them together with fibrin glue. And the fibrin glue is essentially made from blood clots. It's thrombin glue. Um, and we use that all the time. One of the difficult situations that you get into is what, is you, what do you do if you have a neuroma in continuity? Neuroma in continuity is where the nerve is still continuous and some of the fibers are still following firing through, but some of the fibers are also cut. And you have a painful neuroma, but you don't want to downgrade the patient. The last thing you, you'd like to do is excise the whole neuroma to an important nerve, because even though you graft it, you may not get it back. Uh, so what we'll often do in that, that instance under the microscope, we'll break up into, into uh, uh, fibrils and so on, or fascicles. And we'll try and find the neuroma within the fascicles to see which are affected and treat them like separate nerves. But these can be really, really tricky, especially when it's an important nerve. Neurotization, as we talked about, neurotization is taking an extension cord and plugging it into a different outlet. Some typical neurotizations that we do here, as we talked about before, take one of the pectoral nerves, medial or lateral, we really can use either one, and plug it into the musculocutaneous nerve. Spinal accessory nerve we talked about, buccal branches, we do that for facial palsies all the time. And I'll show you a case where we plug into one of the buccal branches, we take sural nerve, put it across the face, into the unaffected side, or into the affected side, and reanimate uh, the face. We use intercostals all the time. Intercostals don't come out of the brachial plexus, so if you have a patient with a pan plexopathy, sometimes you'll neurotize off of two, three, four intercostals. Intercostals have a very low axonal density. We don't love using them, they're not great donors, but sometimes it's all you have. Uh, other ones will, will jump off of uh, spinal accessories. We said spinal accessory has a very high um, axonal density. So which nerves do we like to use? Small nerves with big muscles means high axonal density for the most part. So if you want to figure out which nerves have big axonal density, spinal accessory, right, trapezius, huge muscle, small nerve. 
uh, lateral thoracic, you know, latissimus, big muscle, small nerve, so on and so forth. Intercostal is very small muscle. They're not very dense. Nerve to the subclavius, I just did this last week, I use this one. And then sometimes we'll use contralateral nerves. So if you have a patient with a panplexopathy, you may go to the good side, cut into C7, and run nerve grafts across the chest. There's a couple problems with it. One, it takes a tremendous amount of intestinal fortitude to cut it into someone's only working arm, nerves to their only working arm. You swallow very hard. Uh, when you watch it switch when you cut in, and then you wake them up in a recovery room and you hope you haven't left them with anything. Obviously, it's a little more scientific than that, but we don't love doing that. Uh, the other thing is it adds a lot of length. So if you don't get a patient early, it's not going to work. Uh, another reason why timing is really important. Anyway, keep moving. If anyone has any questions, we can as we go. Nerve transplants. So reconstructive surgery is all about spare parts. For nerve transplants, we'll take, first it was done by, from Cadaver, and Sue McKinnon in St. Louis was the first one to do these. We did the first living related donors where we took from parents, and uh, we typically take the sural nerve, and we can harvest it several days, even a couple of weeks before. In fact, it works better if you harvest it a week or two before. For some reason, you know, the, the, the substances that trigger the immune response, the immunogens, are cold labile. So they do better after they've been in the fridge for a couple of weeks. Um, for nerve transplantation, uh, we use just ABO compatibility. Uh, theoretically, you don't even need to use ABO compatibility. We haven't had enough bravery to, to do non-ABO compatibility, but theoretically you can. Uh, we use Prograph or FK506 for um, uh, immunosuppression. Uh, Sumikin has actually shown that you can use FK506 for auto grafting and patients do better. And I think anecdotally that's true. Uh, in the transplant patients that we've done, they actually heal faster. Their Tinel's sign moves quicker uh, than a patient that's not on ProGraft. Put a small piece of nerve, and again, McKinnon developed this, put a small piece of nerve in the wrist just subcutaneously so you can monitor for rejection. If a patient has a rejection, that nerve's going to get inflamed and so on and so forth. And we use steroids as rescues. So who's a candidate? Someone's injured about a year. Uh, they're otherwise in good health, good support system, have massive injuries. Who's a good donor? Pretty much need ABO compatibility, and obviously you don't want to transplant HIV or Hep C or something. No communicable diseases. And, okay, so after nerve is repaired, recovery is delayed, you have a month or two latency, then your nerve regrows at a millimeter a day. The longer the distance, the longer the recovery time. Again, that's why it's almost impossible to get intrinsics back. Overview of how all this works. We start with the diagnosis. Diagnosis can be harder than you think. Talk about the workup. We get our nerve studies at six weeks. To get them sooner is not really helpful. A lot of the changes that you want to see, you don't see. Uh, before about six weeks or so. And it's not really going to help anyone make a diagnosis. I know sometimes families pressure and so on and so forth. But if we see uh, an EMG done before about six weeks post-injury, we kind of wonder what the motivation was. Uh, we do our nerve repair, post-op care, and rehab is really important. And I'm not just saying that because this is the audience. Best surgery in the world with poor rehab is pretty much worthless. So our preliminary workup starts right away. We get our first EMG at uh, three weeks to six months. If a patient has nothing by EMG or clinically at three months, if they don't look like they are imminently getting better, what happens at that point? We operate. 
If a patient has minimal progress by EMG or clinically at six months, they are not really close to being completely better. We operate. If at nine months they are not perfect, we operate. Why is that? Again, we talked about the mixed fibers. Some of this depends upon what the muscle is, and you don't, you don't need a lot of strength for, for uh, you know, facial mimetic muscles, but you need a lot of strength for your bicep. So, again, we use this as, as a goal. So, when it comes to timing, textbooks are wrong. They are 100% wrong. You do not wait a year. If you wait a year to see if someone gets better, you just, for lack of a better word, really screwed your patient. Because they may get better, and then, you're Dr. Wonderful. You know, you save them an operation. But there are some of them that won't get better, and you have precluded the best operations. We have to do secondary operations. We have to do tendon transfers or other things. Uh, do not wait a year. If they're not improved by three months, they will not improve. If someone has nothing back at three months, they're not getting anything back. EMG at six to eight weeks, we repair it about three months. That also allows us for a second shot. If something goes wrong, they get an infection, this, that, and the other thing, the anastomosis doesn't work, that gives you time to reoperate. How do we follow if the anastomosis is working or what's going on? We follow a tenel sign. Patient's tenel sign should migrate at about an inch a week, right? A millimeter a day. Uh, so, uh, did I say an inch a week? Inch a month, I'm sorry. So what we do is we mark the Tinel sign, we write the date, where it was, take a picture, we keep doing that. Brachial plexus repair. First thing about the brachial plexus, there's a lot of goodies up in the area of the brachial plexus. When we think about surgery, we think about things a little differently. The one thing I really don't want to do is kill the patient. That's a really bad day for both the patient and the surgeon. Anything that is going to tear nerves out of your spinal cord is pretty violent. We've got to make sure there are no other injuries. And my, my old professor of vascular surgery told me this is, this is one of his scariest places in the entire body where the subclavians are. If a patient has a violent enough injury to cause the nerve roots to be torn out of their spinal cord, darn good chance they have a vascular injury as well. The last thing you want to do is bump into the subclav uh, subclavian pseudoaneurysm in the OR. You have to crack their chest to get proximal control of the bleeding. Not a good day. Clavicles right there. So many of these are accompanied with clav clavicular fractures. Cupula of the lung is right there. We worry about pneumothoraces, so on and so forth. Obviously, other orthopedic injuries as well. That's all part of our workup. So in the area of the plexus, the nerves, the bones, the artery, the vein, the lung, we get a study for each one of these things, whether it be an x-ray, uh, MR, uh, arteriography and venography, uh, or what have you. We get uh, MRI of the brachial plexus. We always look at the, at the uh, uh, C-spine as well. Uh, certainly, something that would tear the nerves out of your spinal cord can also cause a herniated disc in the neck and so on and so forth. So you have to think about concomitant injuries there. The diagnosis can be often be very difficult. I'm gonna show you a case where I missed a diagnosis of a brachial plexus injury. Say, that should be pretty easy. Well, you guys know it can be very difficult. It's often clouded by coma. These are patients that have had very violent injuries. Someone's on a ventilator, you can't really examine them neurologically to see what's in and what's out. They're often clouded by orthopedic injuries. They almost always have concomitant bony injuries. Well, if, if you have a patient with a human fracture that's casted, slung, whatever, how are you going to tell if their elbow's working? You can't. But you've got to 
you know, you've got to think ahead when they come out of it, when they come out of their orthopedic, uh, either their cast or the X-fix comes off or whatever it is, you've got to re-examine them, you have to look for subtle things. Often, the diagnosis is very subtle. You know, I spent the better part, and they're often ignored and, and misinformed, the medical staff. I spent the better part, I spent all my training at Bellevue and NYU. We had people come in cut in half by subway cars. So what happens? What, what do you do? You resuscitate them, you bring them to the OR, you this, tie off the cable, what, what, what is it that you do? You're not really asking them, like, squeeze a ball. You know, they're really sick. And then if they survive and you get them out of the ICU, this, that, and the other thing you call social work, like, you know, send them somewhere else, we have more traumas coming in and these things get missed. It may be that you save their life and then it may not be for another year or two. You guys know better than anyone. That why is my hand weak? Why can't I write the way I used to write? Why can't I button my clothes? So on and so forth. And some of these things may be very subtle. By the time you find out about them, it's too late. So you need a high index of suspicion as well. That's why these diagnoses can be hard to make. You guys, as you're seeing the patients in rehab, away from this, you know, the acuteness of the uh, initial resuscitation and so on, are really the second wave to start looking for these things again. And I, I can't express how important that really is. And it's so easy to get sideswiped by the major injury, you know, and, and let some of these minor injuries go by the wayside. But for, as you know, for a lot of these patients, it's those relatively minor things that can be really devastating lifelong. So very important to keep track of those things. Our workup includes chest x-ray, EMGs, MR, CT myelogram to look for avulsions, x-rays, angiogram, venogram, so on and so forth. Team approach, obviously, very important. And the family is such an important factor in this. You guys know from rehabbing these patients, if you can't get someone to and from rehab, they get depressed, this, that, and the other thing, they need a good support system. And those patients that don't have a good support system, for the most part, don't do nearly as well. Here is a young fellow that was in a car accident, in a motorcycle accident, and he's in upper plexopathy. You can see if you look, he's got uh, his deltoid is, is atrophied. He's trying to do the same thing on both sides. Here he is post-op. Again, you can see that his deltoid is, is uh, re-innervated, his bicep looks strong. Uh, here, let's see if you can hear this. Can you guys hear this? motorcycle accident was October 9th. Can you guys hear this? So we're just going to do some range of motion today. Can you bend your arms up? So he's, he's bending on brachioradialis. So he's C5 and 6. Can you raise your arms up to the side like this? So no shoulder abduction, so on and so forth. One, two. Bend your arm up. We can move along just sir. And here he is about six months post-op. Here's another one. 24-year-old motorcycle accident. C5, 6, and 7. It was August of 2009, right? Um, we're just going to video some range of motion tonight. If you want to just raise both of your arms up and over your head. Okay, so from there. All right, relax your arms at your sides. If you want to just raise them both up to the side. You can see that he's in upper plexopathy. Okay. Philip Dorr, the uh, August 22nd. Not bad. The surgery does work. If you find the right patients, you do it expeditiously, you do the right surgery. Uh, what did we do in him? Oh, our, our uh, uh, yes. This is what we did in him. So, as far as rehab goes with these patients, 
We immobilize the patients for three to six weeks post-op when we do nerve surgery. Why? The suture that we use, they're epineural sutures, they're 8-0, 9-0, 10-0 sutures. The nurses in the OR can't even see the sutures. We load them under the microscope. They are finer than a human hair. It's not a strong repair. We use fibrin glue. The fibrin glue that we use is made from blood clot. It's the consistency of a fried egg. It's also not very strong. Our nerve grafts, we want everything protected for about six weeks. Sometimes we don't know ahead of time how we're going to protect it. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll lay in our nerve grafts while everything's open and we're looking at the nerve grafts, we'll move the patient around and we'll see which motions may affect the grafts and which ones won't. So sometimes we may say it's okay to move their shoulder but not move their head as we're looking at things. For the brachial plexus patients, we'll usually put them in a hard collar and we'll put them in a swath and sling for, for about six weeks. Uh, aggressive rehab is very important. One, we have to keep the joints supple, right? Uh, patients, if they get motion, it may not be for a year or so, and you, you don't want the garage door rusted shut. We want to maintain strength, especially for the antagonistic muscles that they have, right? If your biceps is out, your triceps kind of get weak. We don't want the triceps weak until the biceps come back. Uh, we need to build new strength. We often have alternative pathways, so they need to relearn muscle movement, right? So those, from a surgeon's perspective, that's the important, importance of rehab, and I'm sure that's way oversimplified for you guys. So, our basic algorithm. Step one, recognize that there's an injury. Not always so easy to do. Step two, rule out and treat other injuries. Step three, define the injury. And this is where EMG really comes in. Uh, and we can talk about EMGs a little bit. A surgical planning EMG is very different from a diagnostic EMG. Okay? We'll talk about stroke patients a little bit, but when you think about, let's say a stroke patient has spasm of their elbow. You say, oh, it must be a bicep, well, EMG of the bicep. Well, bicep's really two muscles, not one. They work together, but they're really two muscles, two, two separate innervations, connected, but they arborize. Also, you have coracobrachialis, brachialis muscle, brachioradialis. Spasm of any one of those can cause spasm. This, this girl that I saw today from Montana with the stroke, I sent her for an EMG, I spoke to the neurologist, and we need each one of those broken down. So for her tricep, we need three heads of the tricep, separate EMGs. I can't very well tell clinically which are in spasm and which aren't. It's very, very difficult to tell. Um, and then you have to think about muscles that you may want to use as spare parts that you wouldn't get on a typical screening EMG. I want to know if both wrist extensors are working. I may need to use one. And it's very difficult to tell if they can deviate and so on. They've got so many other problems, they can't deviate. There's a lot of reasons that they can't. She's got spasm in her hand. I think it's only FDS. I don't think FDP is, is spastic. But try and get an EMG to discern the two. So it can be much trickier than just a standard screening EMG. You know, is it a radiculopathy or is it peripheral, that kind of thing. Um, so just to back up. Step three is define the injury. Step four is maybe wait. Step five is to repair the nerves of neurotized self-donator transplant. Step six, after rehab and after healing, maybe reoperate on the nerves. Step seven, tendon transfer. And remember, when you do tendon transfers because the rehab's competing, you don't want to do flexor side and extensor side at the same time, right? You can't set tension. And lastly, joint fusion, splinting, so on and so forth. The process from the day I see a brachial plexus patient to the day I'm done can be like three years. 
Remember, if, if you don't know if your nerve repair worked for a year, you've got to rehab in between, heal, reassess. And then parts of it may have worked, parts of it may not have. They say, okay, well, I'll do some tendon transfers. Okay, well, you do the flexors first, then you've got to wait and rehab and so on, six months or so, maybe three, maybe four. Do the other side. Then whatever is not strong enough, so on and so forth, you may fuse. It's a few years by the time you're done. Some advances in peripheral nerve surgery. Um, some things that we do, and we'll, we'll talk through a little bit. Brachial plexus repair, we talked about facial reanimation. So the same basic process that we do for brachial plexus, you do for face. Someone that has Bell's palsy, brain tumor, so on and so forth, you'll graft from the good side into the bad side. The buccal branch, you've got four, five, six, seven buccal branches. You can, you can sacrifice a couple of them and use that to reanimate the other side. Prostate grafting, for men that have extracapsular spread of their uh, prostate cancer, we will take nerve grafts from the sural nerve, from the leg, and where their cavernous nerve, the nerve that, that gives male potency, uh, runs over the capsule of the prostate, when we do a prostatectomy, we'll graft in a piece of nerve to help maintain male potency. We're working on an operation right now to do that after. We're working on an operation to take the genital branch of the genital femoral nerve, which works the cremaster muscle, and attach that into the cavernous nerves of the penis. We have, our IRB is through. We have our first patient, we're in the process of lining up. I was on the phone on the way here talking about getting that patient lined up. Foot drop surgery. Many patients that have foot drop can get tendon transfers. If your tibialis posterior is working, you can transfer it to the tibialis anterior for foot drop. It works better for, for perineal injuries than it does for backs because the tibialis posterior is often affected with backs, but nonetheless, not too many patients, I think, need an AFO splint for their entire life. I do these cases in about half an hour and they work really well. Neurotransplantation, we talked about reanimation after spinal cord injury, and I'll show you a picture, but I realized a while ago that a spinal cord injury is very much like bilateral brachial plexus injuries. Your, your nerve donors, anything above the level of injury still works, right? If you think about it, you have spinal accessory nerves on both sides, although they come off of you know C3, 2, 3, whatever. For the most part, if you're a C2 or C3, you're not really surviving. Or let's put it this way, most of the spinal cord injury patients have those as donors. And if you're C6, you have your C5 donors that you can jump off of. One of the things about spinal cord injury is, because it's central, there's no motor end plate degradation. If anything, the patients have spasm. So any amount of time post-injury, it doesn't really matter. You don't have to worry about a year because your motor end plates have not degraded because they're still functioning. The problem is, if anything, is spastic paralysis. What do we do about spastic paralysis? Well, I can't reinnervate for spastic paralysis. So what we do is we convert spastic paralysis into flaccid paralysis, and then we reinnervate that. So we'll do neurectomies or what have you. Does that make sense? Uh, same thing with stroke. When you think about it, if a stroke, if you get ipsilateral facial paralysis and contralateral arm paralysis and a contralateral limb paralysis, which side is the neck on? Is it on the face or is it on the limb? Kind of variable. Cervical plexus, a lot of it goes to the facial side. But, so that means that you have some donors on the affected side of your arm. 
Also, because a stroke is central, time is not of the essence. So what do we do with stroke patients? We'd like this patient I had today from Montana. Try and figure out what's spastic, do neurectomies on those, figure out what's still functional, and use that to neurotize into the non-functional area. So we'll probably take her pec and neurotize her musculocutaneous. We'll probably take her lateral thoracic and neurotize her nerve to the tricep. Probably fuse her wrists, probably cut her FDS tendons, lengthen her FDP tendons. And uh, you know, hopefully we'll get something. We'll get something for her. Different way of thinking about things, though, right? I mean, the way, this is the way surgeons. This is the way we think about things. Uh, resensitization of the buttocks. I'll show you a case in a second. Patient that had uh, he was a uh, uh, paraplegic and got a lot of breakdown on his rear end, pressure sores. We reinnervated from one of his intercostals above the level of his injury, took nerve from his leg, and grafted into a superior gluteal nerve, so he's got feeling of the buttocks. You guys know, pretty big deal. If a patient can feel their buttocks, they can help protect their buttocks, right? One of the big bugaboos is trying to teach patients to do, take pressure off and their regimens and how many of them live by it and so on and so forth. But if you have feeling, you've got sensibility of your rear end, more likely that you're gonna shift your weight and prevent, uh... here he is. This is Mr. Cavalieri's 55-year-old gentleman. Can you hear? 15, I'm sorry, 50-year-old gentleman who uh, 50 weeks ago so, a spinal cord injured patient who we grafted from his, uh, uh, took sural from his intercostal. Now, he has feeling up there, that's above the level of the injury. And on, you'll see me pinch his right side, he has no sensibility on his right side, that's what his sensibility was on the right side, and then you'll see me pinch his left side. So you can feel a light burning sensation in his left buttock. And when I touch you on your right buttock, tell me if you feel anything. Not particularly. No, it doesn't feel anything. The feeling on the left buttock was the same prior, correct? Yes. Do you have any feeling of the ass? Now watch this. Watch carefully. <laughs> so did we cure spinal cord injury? We did not. Did we help this fellow? We helped this fellow tremendously. That's pretty much what I have. So we're on time, right? We're... Thank you. To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.